I want to begin today by asking you some questions to probe into your thinking. Have you ever worked for something, disciplined yourself day in, day out? You had all your details organized. You had the goal in sight, and then you didn't accomplish your task. You said to yourself, man, next time I will get it. Next time I'll do more. Next time I'll try harder. I won't let anything get in the way next time, not even something seemingly important. That's what you said in your head. Perhaps you had a conversation with someone and you tried to share your faith. Maybe this has been an ongoing conversation. And this person grows and they're interested and then all of a sudden they drop off the radar. They cease communication. They cease interest. They cease talking to you. What do you say to yourself in that moment? You said, hmm, next time I'll share with them something that will change their mind. Next time I'll share with them something that will force them to believe the gospel and repent. You said, I have to do the work to bring this person around. Really, guys, it might not be in terms that bold, but that's what we're saying in our heads. Think about that. We're focusing on ourselves in our own power. We really should be focusing on God. Where did we get this type of thinking? Where did it come from? No surprise, it came from the world and the ruler of this world, who is Satan. The world's economic, social, philosophic, and moral systems have influenced our thinking, and they've crept their way into the church. I'm going to illustrate this further and leave you guys with zero doubt. I'm going to read from an article titled, 24 Quotes That Will Make You Believe That You Can Do Anything. <laughs> First one's by D. Hawk. Failure is not to be feared. It is from failure that most growth comes. Failure is not to be feared. I would submit to you, actually, God is to be feared. And really, as we're going to see shortly, God gives the growth Always, not just sometimes. Next one's by Bill Cosby. In order to succeed, your desire for success should be greater than your fear of failure. Do you desire success more than God's glory? Do you think about that? Finally, Tony Robbins. I've come to believe that all my past failure and frustrations were actually laying the foundation for the understandings that have created the new level of living I now enjoy. Hear this, guys. It seems like humanist wisdom. It seems like quotes that may just slip over your head. But all of these three people have told themselves, and they've wholeheartedly believed, that they're the captains of their destinies. They're masters of their fate. That's what they said. They said, if I do more, if I go the extra mile, if I work harder, surely I can do whatever I put my mind to. That is literally what they have said in their heads. This self-achieving lie of a mindset it's actually an insult to God. It's an insult to his sovereignty and his infinite wisdom. We've taken God's plan and we've questioned it. And we've said, you know, God, I know your plan, but I'm going to try my plan. I think it's better. Unfortunately, guys, we have also believed this lie and we've joined the Corinthian church in this carnal mentality. As we saw last week in Weston's passage, Paul described the Corinthians with several brutal phrases. People of the flesh, still of the flesh, having jealousy and strife, behaving in a human way, and my favorite, merely human. Paul is really addressing head-on one of the major issues that this church was struggling with. They were proud, and they were mixing worldly wisdom with God's wisdom. They started with man's word, and they tried to squeeze in, they tried to fit in God's word. 
They took the worldly way of thinking and they tried to coordinate it with God's way of thinking. That can't happen, guys. It doesn't work. Deontay firmly showed us from chapter 1, verse 20, that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. These two wisdoms cannot and do not mix. We cannot take the wisdom of the world, nor man's word, nor the world's way of thinking, and we can't let those influence us in any way. Can't happen, guys. We have to listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's 2 Peter, verses, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. As the Apostle Peter just stated, man offers one thing, but we don't need that. We need what God has to offer. We need God's knowledge, God's wisdom, God's word. We need God's power. In these, guys, hear this, in these, we are equipped for all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's an incredible truth we need to keep in the back of our heads. That being said, I'm going to point you guys right now to the big picture. The main idea for today is that Paul is correcting the Corinthians' view of themselves. He's giving them a proper theology, and he's addressing the issue of unity in that church. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Paul here is continuing to correct and teach this church to separate itself from the world and to live as God has instructed. Let's read the passage. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. All right, beginning this section, Paul immediately addresses an issue that the church in Corinth was struggling with previously. Chapter 1, verse 12, division. They had said, oh, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. And as Weston said, there's that one weird group that says, I follow Christ. Who's that, right? Paul is attacking this worldly problem, and he's giving them his purpose and an accurate view of himself and Apollos. Verse 5 reads, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Hope you have your pens ready. I'm going to give you two references to listen to. We're not going to turn there. And if you'd like to write them down, please do. Acts chapter, 20, sorry, Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, we find a description of Apollos. We're really just going to zoom in on the last verse, 28. For he, that's Apollos, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that, that the Christ was Jesus. The key to see here is obvious, guys. Apollos was a powerful, zealous guy. He was fired up. He boldly told the religious leaders the truth. He didn't care. He went up to them and he said, the Christ is Jesus. You need to know this. We're going to transition to Paul now. I'm sure you guys are familiar with this passage. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul's giving his summary of himself, basically his biography, but we're going to hone in on verse 6. Paul says about himself, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We know Paul quite well, but nonetheless, he also was zealous 
powerful, and very enthusiastic. He was so enthusiastic, he even says about his zeal, before he became a Christian, he was so fired up to do what he thought God wanted him to do, to crush the Christian insurrection. While these two men were on fire, they had achieved great things, perhaps. They recognized that God was the only person who could give the growth in that scenario. God caused the results to happen, and as such, they submitted to him willingly. Don't think about this in a far-off, ethereal way as if it's not directed towards you, because it'd be so easy for someone to fall into that trap. They could say, they could look at Apollos or Paul, and they could latch onto their personality as an idol. It'd be as if one of us said, man, look at that Deontay guy. He's pretty fired up. I think I'm going to follow him. I'm going to forget this other thing. I don't want to follow Deontay. Or, look at that Matt Tebow guy. He's pretty zealous. He's pretty passionate. I think I'm going to take Matt Tebow, and I'm going to make my life after him. You see how easy that would be for them to do. That is why Paul had to correct their thinking, their errant thinking. It was wrong. The worldly tendency for idolatry in this church was strong. But immediately, Paul shuts this idea down, and he gives them an accurate view of himself and Apollos. The second half of verse 5 reads, Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Paul referred to himself in the plainest, most base terms, a servant. But catch this, he didn't, refer, he didn't refer to himself as just a servant, but a humble servant. Notice his question in verse 5. It's not what you would expect. He doesn't say, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? It's what? What is Paul? What is Apollos? He's not questioning himself as a person. He's questioning his very essence, his very being. He, he knew who God was, and he knew he had to look at himself rightly in light of that. This is such an excellent attitude for us to have, guys. Humility in light of who God is. Do you think about that? Do you ponder that? Even though Paul and Apollos were two zealous, fired up, enthusiastic guys, they recognized God was so far greater, for, so far greater than them and that to God, really, they were replaceable, expendable, and unworthy servants. Do you recognize that God can use someone other than you to accomplish his will? Are you thankful that God is using you and me at all in light of our broken and our depraved state? Paul and Apollos, servants with an excellent, humble mindset. As servants, they had a job to do. And as it says in the text here, Paul was the planter and Apollos watered. Verse 6 shows the roles that each of them played. And while what they were doing was important, God could have used anybody else. He didn't need Apollos or Paul in the position he had them. Even so, Apollos and Paul submitted willingly and faithfully. God can accomplish his work without Apollos, without Paul, and without you or me for that matter. He doesn't need us. He could use anybody else to do a better job, perhaps. The real focus of this whole entire letter to the Corinthians, Paul is taking the Corinthians' focus off themselves, and he's directing it to God and to the truth. Taking their focus off the Corinthians and putting it on God, where it needs to be. Let's look at verse 7. Paul now shows that he and Apollos worked as a team. They worked as one. They were of the same purpose in mind. But even so, 
They recognized that they were expendable, they were replaceable, they were disposable, they were substitutable. Someone else could have taken their place, no problem. To me, that's interesting. It begs the question in my mind, does God need us? Are we a necessity to God? Could he be able to do his work without us? Newsflash, he could. <laughs> he totally could. He doesn't need us. God can use whomever, however he chooses. He could use any person to accomplish his sovereign will and his kingdom work. But think about this, guys. It is such a privilege to be used by God. Such a privilege. Although we are not important, God is using our work in accomplishing his sovereign will. What a mercy and honor that God would even think about using us. Not just that he would redeem us, but he would take us to be used by him for his glory. Redeemed us from sin to his work. We were spiritually dead, and now we are living for the glory of God. Really, guys, I hope this makes you prostrate fall and step back and worship God as we ponder his infinite wisdom and his mercy and his provision. Are you thankful that the Lord has chosen to use you? Do you think about all the Lord has provided you? Do you ponder what he's done in your life? I'm going to point to this provision in verse 6. Notice the tense. Notice the grammar here. Paul planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Other translations on this verse read, God was giving the growth. And really, the distinction can be seen in verse 7. God is giving the growth. To word this another way, God is continually, actively giving growth. Did you catch that? Presently, perpetually, unceasingly, God is giving growth. Paul and Apollos had roles that they fulfilled in the past, past tense, but God, present tense, is giving growth and will continue to give growth. He's going to fulfill that role as only he can. Paul and Apollos had roles in preaching the word, evangelizing, shepherding, proclaiming truth. And really, God was the ultimate worker. They had roles to do, but it was God who was working behind the scenes. Really, as only God can do, even though they were doing their job, God created spiritual growth and salvation out of that situation. I'm going to share something with you guys that might blow your mind. Hopefully not, though. No gifted evangelist, no talented preacher, no convicting author, no impassioned speaker is able to give spiritual growth. God has a monopoly. He has all the pieces. He has all the control and authority over spiritual growth. God and God alone can give spiritual growth. Remember that. He creates life out of death. He creates something out of nothing. If you have placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of your sin against a holy God, he's taken your spiritually dead and unresponsive condition, and he's given you life everlasting. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, jumping to verse 4, but God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Ponder that, guys. Our God is an incredible God who takes us by his grace. He breathes life into us for his purpose and his glory. What a salvation. What a God we serve. If you're a child of God, I really want you to hear this next portion carefully. Paul and Apollos were united in purpose and in mind. And they knew that they would be held accountable for their efforts. Verse 8 reads, Now the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. I'm going to read that one more time. Now the one planting and the one watering, that's Apollos and Paul, are one in purpose, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We will stand before God one day, and we will be accountable for what we have done. Each will receive his own reward. That's what it says. Let me give you another verse to clarify. Turn to the right in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This actually is the fourth letter of Paul to the Corinthians. There was one before 1 Corinthians and one after. We're going to hone in on chapter 5, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This good or evil phrase can be somewhat misleading, perhaps. You could rephrase it like this. We will receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether profitable or useless. It's not, it's not the idea of, oh, he's doing good and he's doing evil. It's a contrast between better and best. The emphasis is on whether your life is serving God in an excellent way, faithful way, or is your life a splash in the pan? Does it fail to meet God's call? Are you failing to do your job that God has called you to? That's the idea here. Don't hear me incorrectly on this. Although God is ultimately in control of growth and salvation, we, as Christians, we are ultimately accountable for the actions we will do. And we're accountable for whether they're worthwhile or if they're selfishly pointless. That being said, we must recognize that while we're accountable and we are going to receive rewards or a lack of rewards for what we have done in this life, God is the one who deserves praise and he deserves glory. He deserves the glory for whatever growth has happened. Whatever growth has happened recently, this summer perhaps, whatever the growth has happened previously in your life, and whatever growth is going to happen 10 years from now or next week, God, God gets the glory. Verse 9 reads, We are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and you are God's building. I didn't let you guys turn there, I just realized that. We're in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Whatever our role or progress or whatever achievements we had, we must recognize that God owned the church in Corinth. That was his church. It was God's church. You might want to say, oh, I thought that was Paul's church. Or if you're really confused, you'd say, oh, I thought that was Apollos' church. No, nope. God's church. God owned that church. And in fact, he owns our church. He owns every church. Think about that. 
Be encouraged by this. We are just like his employees, attending to, keeping the church for his glory until he comes back. While God is in complete and sovereign control of all things, we are his building and his field. The church is his building and his field. God will, that's a promise, God will continue to build his building and cultivate his field. He's going to continue to do that. We will continue to experience the sanctifying effects of God's word and his people in our lives as we grow towards Christ's likeness. God is so sovereign and awesome, he even gave us a promise. We're going to turn to this one. It's so good. First Gospel, Matthew, chapter 16. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus is speaking to the Apostle Peter, who just had some really good words of wisdom, only to lose it. <laughs> So now Jesus is speaking to Peter in between there, and he says, I'll read for you guys, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You, since we weren't there, we couldn't see Jesus pointing or making hand gestures or waving or indicating who is which rock. So let me clarify. Peter is a name that means rock, but little rock, pebble, footstone perhaps. So Jesus basically says, Peter, you're the little rock. You're the pebble. And I'm the big rock. I'm the cornerstone. You little rock, me big rock. <laughs> and he says, on this rock, on the cornerstone, I'm going to build my church. The cornerstone is going to be the foundation for God's church. That's Jesus. It's not Peter. It's Jesus. That being said, Jesus basically says to Peter, you know what? Not even the gates of hell can topple my church. Do you consider that? Do you think about that encouragement, that motivator, and that foundational truth? Praise be to God that we are not in control of growing or keeping God's church. Because if we were, we would fail, and we'd fail miserably. No doubts there. How great is our God that he has promised to continue his church and to sustain his church without fail. What a God we have that has not only redeemed us from our lost state, taken us to be used for his purpose and his will as humble servants. But here's the catch, guys. He continues to grow us. He doesn't just leave us in one spot. He's advancing us. He's growing us for his glory and his alone. We've unpacked this text to whatever extent, and now we must respond. God's word demands our focus and a response. So if you've tuned out, tune back in. Listen up. Get your ears on. If you're here today without the Lord Jesus Christ, unfortunately, you cannot and you will not experience growth from God. You must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. If you've not believed in Christ, you're spiritually dead. You're dead. You're unresponsive. Here's the catch, guys. God is so ready and he's so able to give you growth. Turn to him right now, today, tonight, and receive salvation. He will be faithful to his promise to grow you and to continue to grow you. I want to further buttress our thinking and reaffirm our role and God's role. 
We're going to turn to the parable of the seed growing in Mark chapter 4. Verses 26 through 29. I really hope you guys catch the similarities here because they're very blatant. But nonetheless, we're going to look at this. Gospel of Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. I'm going to point some things out to you guys. The kingdom of God in this parable can be akin to salvation. The sower is the proclaimer of the gospel. As he's sowing the seed, that's the proclamation of the gospel as it goes out. Day in, day out, the sower is faithful to his job. He experiences apathy, frustration, pain, no doubt, daily struggles we all face. But what does he do? He continues. He's faithful. The sower is simply putting seed into the ground. He's simply proclaiming the gospel, preaching the word. Much to his amazement, he sees growth. The sower sees growth. It's a sprouting. It's not a tree overnight. He doesn't wake up and say, oh, wow, look at that 30-foot tree. That's incredible. He sees maybe a small green shoot, maybe a couple. He sees growth. It's not something incredible. We can't hope to save the world overnight. But he does see growth. The process described as, as the seed grows, it's a strange process. The sower doesn't even fully understand it. There's something peculiar about it he can't quite wrap his mind around. Nonetheless, the sower sees growth. Be encouraged and comforted by this. The salvation of men does not rest on your shoulders. You may think, man, I have to do the work. I have to go here. I have to be here. Music on Main evangelism. Be at Cross Life. God can save people. You can't. It's not in your power to bring someone from life to death. Only God can do that. God calls you to be faithful. This is my favorite part of this whole parable. The sower is not the agent of growth, but God is. Even so, God is permitting the sower to experience the full joy of reaping the benefits of salvation. That last verse reads, At once, when the grain is ripe, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's the joy, guys. We get to see people come from darkness to light. We get to experience that. What a grace. What a privilege that is. To summarize what we've learned from this parable, we as sowers, we have a job to do. We must proclaim the gospel. We must do that faithfully. But also remember, we can't save the world in a day. We maybe can't even save 20 people in a day. But nonetheless, we must be faithful. In the same way, God is faithful and he's sovereign. He gives the growth however he chooses. But praise to God, because we are humble servants, privileged to see and experience the full joy of salvation. We have recognized that God is ultimately in control of all growth and all good things in our life. To conclude, we're going to zoom out and we're going to examine God's character, namely his sovereignty.
with the help of Charles Spurgeon. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbly and expanding, while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound, in musing on the Father, there's a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there's a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. As we hear from Charles Spurgeon, it's not only a great challenge when we reflect on God's sovereignty and our inabilities, but it's an excellent encouragement and an affirming truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you tonight. You deserve all praise. You deserve all honor. Lord, help us to recognize our role in this life and your role in our life, God. Let us not be self-focused. Let us be focused on what you've called us to do, Lord Jesus. Faithfully proclaim the gospel and leave the results to you. Teach us, Lord. Glorify yourself through us. And I pray that this evening will be a time of encouragement and fellowship. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, God. Lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.